afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's up? Welcome to Sense of Saturday Irish. My name is Tyler Rojak. I'm joined by my co-host Luke Smith. And we got a big episode today. I'm really excited about this one. First, our top recurring guest, Mike Singer from Rivals and BlueAndGold.com, joins us to go over Notre Dame's entire recruiting class for the class of 2022. Now that the first signing period is behind us, it looks like this class is pretty much set for Notre Dame. Even though there's still another month and a half left before the February signing period, the Irish signed 21 commits, 15 four-stars, five three-stars, and a two-star punter which puts them at seventh in the team recruiting rankings. Um, we know there were some misses late. We saw a couple guys decommit and go elsewhere. So I'll touch on all that, and we go really in-depth on all the guys who signed their national letter of intent to Notre Dame, so I hope you guys enjoy that. Then we'll talk with Matt Fortuna from The Athletic to go over the first month of the Marcus Freeman era at Notre Dame. Matt and some of his colleagues at The Athletic were all over this story as Notre Dame transitioned from Brian Kelly to Freeman as the head coach, and he shared some interesting insights about Tommy Reese turning down the job at LSU, as well as some of the challenges Marcus Freeman will face that we might not see on the field. Um, All right, we've got plenty to get to, so let's get into it and start by talking some recruiting. All right, we're joined now by a great friend of the program, Mike Singer, recruiting insider for Rivals and BlueAndGold.com. Mike, the first national signing day is behind us, and even though there's still some time left before the February signing period, it looks like Notre Dame is going to secure a top 10 class in back-to-back years for the first time since 2007-2008 per rivals. There's a ton I want to get to, but let's start with the linebackers, because this was Marcus Freeman's group from the moment he joined the staff as defensive coordinator, and with Jalen Sneed, Josh Burnham Jr., Tui Halamaka, and Nolan Ziegler in the field, this group looks like it has the potential to be one of the most talented to come through Notre Dame in a long time. How does this group stack up against some of the best in the country? I mean, it, I think you can make an argument that it's, you know, one of the two or three best in the country. I mean, it, it, it's a really darn good group. Um, I think Alabama's, you know, is, is comparable with, with the talent that that, you know, that school has. But I mean, when you're fourth best linebacker, whether you want to, you know, however you want to look at it, you probably would say it's Nolan Ziegler. That's your fourth best linebacker in school's best linebacker. It, it's uh, it's a really good group. They complement each other well. Um, like a Ziggler is a Rover slash a Will. Burnham is like a Mike slash Will. Tui Halamaka is a Mike all the way, in my opinion. And then Sneed is a Rover slash Will. So you got the versatility with those guys. Um you know, I, I even think, you know, Burnham, maybe even Tui Halamaka could be defensive ends potentially. I mean, um, th- there, there's good versatility in the group, tons of talent, great young men, great families. It's, you know, what you would have expected from coming in and recruiting his butt off. Um, 
And I mean, they beat out some big time schools. Ziegler, you know, really came down to Notre Dame and Michigan, Burnham, the same thing. Uh, you know, Notre Dame offers Tui Halamaka. Two days later, he decommits from USC. And then Sneed, you know, had offers from just about everybody. So um, some really good recruiting wins and, and obviously great talent. Despite the class ranking in the top 10, Notre Dame didn't finish as strong as they probably would have liked uh, in the last month before signing day. Notre Dame had three players decommit. The first to go was Devin Moore, four-star defensive back out of Florida, who eventually signed with the Gators on signing day. And then there were, of course, two receivers, four-star C.J. Williams and three-star Morion Walker, who flipped as well. I want to ask about Devin Moore first, because I know you were very high on him. He decommitted the day after it was announced that Brian Kelly was going to LSU. So was that the driving factor in his decision to go elsewhere, or was it something else? I think the Kelly leaving Notre Dame was kind of like a a cherry on top. Maybe like, I think it was already trending towards him decommitting from Notre Dame. Like I had heard um, that he had kind of gone silent on Notre Dame on, on some occasions um, leading up to that. So I think it was just kind of like a, well, Kelly's gone. So it's kind of like a, it's a good time to decommit. Like it, it would make sense to decommit at that point if he was already wanting to. So with even Williams and Walker, like, Kelly leaving was not a driving force behind anyone decommitting. And to be quite honest, it wasn't a driving force. Like Kelly as a coach, like Notre Dame's recruits don't commit to Kelly, like as their biggest reason for picking the fighting Irish, like someone like Jalen Sneed, who we just talked about if Freeman would have been gone, like Sneed would have been gone. But with Kelly, that just wasn't the case. I've said this about Kelly so many times he was a really good recruiter for Notre Dame when he recruited. And the problem was, you know, he just didn't do it a ton in hindsight, it actually kind of helped the Irish keep this 2022 class together because he wasn't super involved, but um, you know, just overall, um, you know, again, good recruiter, but not super active in it. Freeman's kind of the opposite in it, super active and and recruits his butt off. Um, So, but yeah, going back to the original question, Devin Moore, um, super talented player, draw, drew some Kyle Hamilton comparisons with his length and ability to, um, you know, have such great agility and short area quickness at that size. So it stings, but Kelly leaving was just kind of like the the nudge to make him go ahead and announce it. And yeah, it, was, it was a big loss for the Irish. Yeah, I, I would think that Dan Mullen leaving Florida would actually just make Florida more appealing for him to go play there. But that's uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, anyways, how would you grade this this crop of defensive backs as a whole? Then corners Jaden Mickey, Jaden Bellamy, and Benjamin Morrison are all solid players. But after losing more to Florida and missing out on five star Xavier Wonkba, who signed with Iowa, Notre Dame was unable to sign a true safety in this class. Yeah, but Morrison played a lot of cover two safety this season. Bellamy, I actually believe the Irish prefer as a field safety, and he played corner and safety this year. Mickey, to me, is a nickel or a field corner all the way. But, yeah, so they didn't sign a true safety. But, I mean, to me, a true safety is, you know, someone who that they're just a safety. You're you're not going to see them at corner. So I like the versatility in that, you know, you got guys who can play both. So to me, I see Morrison and Mickey as, as corners. And I, I like Bellamy at safety. Um, he, he's, uh, he's not the biggest guy. He's about 5'11", 170 pounds right now. So he's slender, 
But if we were talking about him being like six two one eighty, I think he's a five star. Like to be honest, like I, so the the size holds him back from that kind of standpoint. But you know, when I talk to people close to Notre Dame football program, the feeling is that he has just got this. He's got a little. Can I curse? Can I curse? Yes, Mike, he's go got some it. shit to him. Yeah, he's got some yeah. shit to him, and. He's just got this quiet confidence and swagger and, and, and some shit to him that, you know, Notre Dame's really excited about. Let's go back to the receivers. Um, Luke oh, mentioned. <laughs> Wait, no, receiver. Yeah, <laughs> well, <it>. good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or lack thereof, I guess I should say. Luke mentioned the decommitments of C.J. Williams. Uh, he looks like he's headed to USC. And Moran Walker, who flirted with a bunch of different schools before ultimately flipping to Michigan on signing day. Look, decommits always hurt. They hurt more when you lose them to your two rivals, and they really hurt uh, when they happen at a position where you're desperately lacking depth, as is the case right now with the Notre Dame receiving court. And look, they're still able to sign four-star Tobias Merriweather. He could be a star, but still, Notre Dame needed about three or four receivers in this class, and they ended up with one. How did this happen? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of some- crappy luck that you know that's the position you really needed a strong class with yeah. all of the the transfers they've had and you know cj williams committed seemed really strong with the irish something just kind of flipped in his mind of i want to stay close to home like it was just kind of a a flip of the switch for him and then with walker you know i mean i i think myself and and other notre dame reporters had been saying for a while that like, yeah, he's visiting these schools, but like we, we like where the Irish stand with them because he and his family were just like telling Notre Dame, like, Hey, we're good. You know, laying out whatever reasons for taking other visits, which ultimately he did take five official visits <laughs> being well committed to Notre Dame. Did he go to Kansas state last week? Did I see that? Or was he, that a troll job? That was, uh, I think it was like his uncle played there or he had a cousin or oh, something okay. to play at Kansas state. That official visit actually took place in June. It just went unreported. Ah, I had known okay. about it. Um, but I was like, you know, if the kid doesn't want it out there, like it's not a big deal. Yeah. He's not going to go to Kansas state anyways. So yeah, that was in June. Um, like, I think he went there without telling Notre Dame, like just, Oh man, when, when, when he, when it came signing day and then it was ready for his announcement, I was just like, I don't care if it's Notre Dame or Michigan <laughs> or Kansas state. Like just let it be over. Like I'm, I'm on that recruitment w- w- was very tiresome for me and, and took a year off my life. Um, so yeah, it, it's um, look here are your scholarship receivers at Notre Dame. And I can write all these off pretty quickly. Cause yeah. there's not many. You got styles, Thomas and Colsey. Um, that was your 2021 receiver class. You have no one in the 2020 class, no one in 2019. And then in that 2018 group, Kevin Austin, Braden Lindsay, Joe Wilkins Jr. are all still um, you know, on the roster. And then Avery Davis. If Notre Dame somehow keeps all seven of those guys and you bring in Tobias Merriweather, you have eight scholarship receivers if they don't bring in anyone else. That is like, that's so low. You are, goodness gracious, I mean, Thank goodness Notre Dame's got like a fantastic tight end room and they can split some of those guys out. That kind of like helps, but I, I really think they need another. I personally would like them if the numbers work to get another grad tra- to get a grad transfer receiver and then another high school guy. If the right person's out there, um, I, I, as we record this, um, you know, Friday morning, they technically still could get another guy in this December signing period, it ends at, at what midnight, midnight or whatever it is tonight, 6 PM. I, I don't know what the cutoff date is, but 
Um, otherwise, I I would like to see them get someone in February. Yeah, I mean, eight guys, that's just not sustainable. That's one or two injuries away from things becoming just really dire during the season. We but, saw it this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they have, what, six this year, right? I know. So six that are healthy. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned there might be some ways for Notre Dame to get someone now, or maybe not in this signing period, but in the February one. Are there any receivers left on the board that you know of that Notre Dame could potentially make a run at um, before the February signing day? I mean, they, they've – they're looking at some names from what I'm told, but I, I, I'm not, again, not expecting anyone in this December period. And then they'll just kind of have to reevaluate. Freeman even talked about that during the, his press conference. Like, you know, we're, we're going to reevaluate our needs and, and part of it will depend on who they get back. Um, like if they can get Austin and Lindsay and, uh, I I'm a big Joe Wilkins guy. I would like to see him back as well. And then I don't know, does Avery Davis stick around? Well, I think that would be awesome. Um, so you know, we'll have to see on that, but yeah, no one like to really write home about in, in terms of February, like there's a kid in Texas, um, Stefan something from DeSoto high school, which pumps out a, a ton of really good receivers. Um, you know, he might visit in January, but otherwise nothing super, um, you know, to, to write home about right now. All right. Last question on the receivers and we can move on. Um, the transfer portal has been brought up a lot as another option for Notre Dame dad receivers. Do you know of any current players in the portal um, that the staff is seriously looking at? <laughs> uh, there, there's a kid, Micah Pittman, um, who's transferring out of Oregon. Notre Dame had some contact with him, but my understanding is that he's an undergrad guy. And even, you know, with Kelly out and Freeman in, like Notre Dame is still Notre Dame. Like, I don't know if they're going to be able to get undergrad guys, it's just really difficult for them to transfer into Notre Dame. Um, so no one really right now to my knowledge, but again, something to keep an eye on, especially, you know, if they lose one of those, you know, upper class guys we talked about, you know, Austin or Lindsay, you know, then they'll definitely, I mean, you, you just have to get some experience. Without a doubt. Um, now, it does look like Notre Dame continued to build on its strengths at positions like offensive line, tight end, and, and defensive line. The offensive line was an especially impressive haul. They signed five guys who were all ranked in the top 30 at their position. Who stands out to you from that group? Man, I mean, it, it's a really good group. And the 2021 class had five guys on the offensive line. And like that was like a A plus group in my opinion, and this one is just as good. I mean, um, I, I all I mean all of them stand out, but the one who Notre Dame fans probably aren't talking about a ton is Ashton Craig uh, from Lawrenceburg, Indiana, suburb uh, just outside of Cincinnati. Um, he is he, he's a very impressive player. Um, so I want to showcase him. Like obviously, you, you you'd go to Shrouth or um, or Wagner. Um, to you know, one of the other big name guys, Tanona uh, Chan. All five of these are are uh, all Americans. Um, four of them are going to play at the All American Bowl in San Antonio, and then Chan will play at the Under Armour All America Game in Orlando. I mean, it, it's a really good group. So, like someone like Craig again is is going to get underlooked because you know some sites have him as a three star on three and twenty four seven as a four star again an All American. Um, doesn't play against great competition, um, but man, does he maul people uh, as a physical interior offensive lineman, um, or at least that's where he's projected to play at Notre Dame. So really like him, but it's a darn good group. Emil Wagner is 
got a chance to be a really special player at the tackle position for Notre Dame. The future of tight end U looks bright. Yes. Uh, with four-star Eli Raritan, three-star Holden Stays joining the Irish. And Eli Raritan was a fast riser in the recruiting rankings after he had a really impressive senior year. Um, and Holden had an offer from Alabama, so we know they're two really talented players. How would you compare them with some of the other tight ends to come through Notre Dame over the past decade or so? I have no idea why the hell Holden Stays is not a four-star anymore. Like that, just I was like, what? Like he, I, 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 that just yeah, made seemed odd. No, no, like. I just I just didn't get that by rivals, um, but um, it's kind of funny. His drop was like part of the reason was because it reared and moved up. Like so, when someone moves yeah, there's up, like I think they're uh, consecutive in the uh, rivals player rankings. They're back to back. Yeah. So Raritan, um, he like when you see him in person, you're like, holy crap! Like he's he's like he's listed at what like six six two twenty five. But you see him in person, and, and you're like, you're just looking up at him. He's a very impressive physical specimen. Um, so he is long, he's athletic, um, and stays is not asshole. He's about six four, uh, but he's like really broad in the chest and shoulders. So both physical, both can block. I mean, they're just really well-rounded guys. Raritan's got the higher ceiling um then stays but stays is he's a darn good player too so as far as comparisons go i mean just in insert name for from tight end you i mean you you pick any i you know i, I don't know i hadn't thought about that it's a good question but yeah raritan is just this long split them out and and uh but both of them can play um you know next to a tackle and both can be split out in the slot. Rared, and he could even, you know, be a, a red zone, you know, kind of thread on the outside in one-on-one situations. I mean, there's some really good guys. To round out the offense, two players who seem to have kind of flown under the radar a bit are running back Jadarian Price, four-star out of Texas, and, and quarterback Steve Angeli, who I think was the first commit in the entire class. So what, what should Notre Dame fans know about those two guys? I think Angeli was about third or fourth. Um, you had – Chan Ziegler and Sonona before him, but it was close. Good try. Yeah. I didn't, Good yeah. try, Luke. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, I, I, I like Angelia a lot. Uh, I've seen him in person f- uh, four times, all different kind of events, you know, one practice, one game, a rivals camp, uh, you know, a, a future 50 camp Under Armour event. I mean, and um, he's, he's like, he's listed at 6'2", 210, but when you see him, you know if it's like 70 degrees outside, but the, your weather app tells you it feels like 74. Like, Angeli is listed at 6'2", 210, but he looks about 6'3", 225, if that makes sense. Like, he, he just, like, he, he he's a really good build. So, you're, you know, Buckner's, what, like 6'1". You know, you had uh, Ian Book at about six foot. Like, Angeli is not going to be, you know, he, he's not, like, one of these shorter quarterbacks. Like, he's... You know, his dad's about six six. So like Angeli, you know, if he can even grow a little bit more, I mean, he's you know, he, he's got the size for sure. Um, he's got the arm talent, um, not like a elite arm strength, but very good accuracy, good functional mobility for someone his size. Like, you know, he's not a statue back there. Um, he can move it. He's not, you know, Tyler Buckner athletic, but he's not uh Jack Cohn, 
you know, slow. Um, so and no offense to Jack, like, you know, it's just, you know, just God given uh, abilities, you know, not in his, his legs, but and jelly's just like a good, well-rounded player. Um, someone you don't want to sleep on, in my opinion. Like, I think you can surprise some people and price, you know, he doesn't have a ton of fanfare because, you know, he's just not like a big, you know, social media presence. He's not going to do a ton of interviews, but dude's highly productive um, during his high school career, had a fantastic senior season. Just another, like, like Lance Taylor loves his all-purpose backs who can catch, can line them up in the slot, you know, block, like Price can do it all. So uh, another really good get for, for Notre Dame's running back room. Was Jelly the first offer in this class? I think that's what quarterback. I said that to Luke. First okay, quarterback yeah. offer. I'll take yeah. the fall for that. That was what I said. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, that was my fault, not Luke's. Okay, the last position group we haven't discussed is the defensive line, and Mike Elston has done an incredible job as a recruiter, but also as a developer of talent since he's become the D-line coach. We know about Tyson Ford, the defensive end, high four-star, one of the biggest names in the class, but we've also seen a lot of guys come through Notre Dame who – weren't that highly recruited, but turned into stars on the D-line in recent years. Um, Ade Ugandeji, for example. Is there another D-lineman in this in this group that you think could blossom into a great player in a few years? Or maybe it's players. Yeah. I mean, Ford is, you know, he's a big body, 6'4", about 270 right now. I like him at strong side end or, you know, move to the three technique. Um, Aiden Gobira. Is, is in my opinion, he's a viper. He's a strong side end. And then Donovan Heinish, you know, Notre Dame just hopes that he is, uh, he's going to be Kurt Heinish. I mean, that's, that's the comp. I mean, he's, um, you know, he's not as big as Kurt was at this point. Um, he's a little bit more narrow in the shoulders, but, you know, he, he's, you know, quicker, maybe better burst than Kurt at this point, you know, of Kurt's career. So, or, you know, when, when he was in high school. So, you know, we'll kind of see if, if he's, you know, just a little bit of a lesser version than Kurt, then that's fine. Like that's, a, that's a good get for Notre Dame. And then, uh, you know, go Byron Ford. They're, they're long athletic guys who Mike Elston, you know, he just kind of got a ball of clay and, and he can develop and mold them um, to, you know, be like what you said, like Ade Ogundeji. Western Michigan commit at one time, like just gets them in. He's raw, develops them. I, I see the same with Gobira and Ford. Gobira is, you know, he's thin, so he's got to put on, you know, a good bit more weight, but, you know, he's, he's long and, and has a really high motor. Shifting more big picture here, what do you think it says about Notre Dame as a program that they just hauled in their best class in, I think, nine years since the 2013 class, and fans are still a little bit disappointed about the outcome? Yeah, I mean, it, it's the the reason fans are disappointed in the outcome is the the finished right. I mean, they came into this week um, or National Signing Day week with, with kind of four names on the board: Devin Moore flips to Florida, Amarion Walker flips to Michigan, Anthony Lucas um, on three has him as a five star defensive lineman. You know, he goes to Texas A and M. Notre Dame fought like hell for him, but couldn't get him. Um, and then, um, there, there, there's one, or is that four Devin Moore? Oh, it's CJ Williams. CJ Williams. Yeah. Who, who flips to USC. So the finish wasn't strong. Right. But remember five days before signing day, Notre Dame gets Billy Strauss. I mean, like maybe the fighting Irish staff just said, Hey, Billy, why don't you 
wait until Wednesday to commit so we can get a, a nice uh, momentum <laughs> boost. Yeah. Like, I mean, what the hell? I mean, it, it, it is what it is, you know, like, so that that's part of it. And then it, I think Notre Dame fans have a bad taste in their mouth with, with the receiver position. And, you know, it's hard to get around the, look, I get Walker and Williams, like, I, like Dell Alexander gets a ton of blame for this stuff, but like, I don't know what Notre Dame could have done differently for those two guys to keep them in the fold. I don't know. Like Notre Dame's not going to throw the bag at these kids, you know, just not Notre Dame. Um, but what they could have done better is, is have a backup plan or some contingency plan. Like yeah. who am I to say like Notre Dame should have done this. This is what they should have done. They're idiots. I'm smarter than that. like, no, like I'm, I, I just report on what they're doing and I'll give my opinion. Um, but like, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm smarter than those guys. But still, how do you not like? How do you not have a contingency? Yeah. Plan? It's not like defensive line. Like when Notre Dame had four defensive line commitments and they lose one, you know, Darren Agu um, several months ago, they didn't go and get a, a, a replacement for him because they didn't really need it. Like the defensive line room is plenty stocked. It wasn't, you know, like a necessity. But like receiver. Are you kidding me? Like they really needed. Yeah. I'm, at, at some points, like they were going after a fourth, they, like they had their three commits locked in since August. They offered two other 2022 receivers in the fall. Um, and it was like, all right, are they going to go get a fourth receiver? And then they only signed one. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you, you, I, I don't know how to wrap my head around like how this happened. So that's the one criticism for me. Semi related to that. Despite the highly ranked class, on Wednesday, Notre Dame signed only one top 100 prospect. That's Jalen Sneed. Conversely, AM signed, I think, nine, Bama 12, Georgia 10, and Ohio State 8. What do you make of that and, and what the significance of kind of that discrepancy is? Well, I mean, you know, top 100, because what that was like a Pete Sampson tweet. I think uh, I, I was I saw it and then I, I went through and, and just kind of counted yeah. on my own. And some of the numbers are a little bit different, but that's kind of what I came. Right. right. So it's yeah. well, yeah. One, it depends on what site you're looking at. Um, you know, like I, I think on the on three consensus, which pulls together all four of the major sites, you know, ESPN on three, 24, seven rivals and, and, you know, weighs them equally. You know, it's one top 100 player, but if you pick like 100 is just kind of an, a nice round number that everyone likes, but it's like, well, what about 135 or yeah. you know, 140? Yeah. Like then Notre Dame has like seven or something like that. So it, it's just how you pick, you know, wh where, where do you go off of? Like I, I tweeted out that the, um, uh, or I post on our message board, like the top three schools in the country in this class are all in the SEC, Bama, yeah. Georgia, Texas A&M, like that. I don't even think it matters what site you look at. So it's, it's pretty even. The Pac-12 has one in the top 35. Like yeah. that's terrible. But they also have three in the top 40 because like they have you know one one schools at 37, one's at 39. So it just like depends on where the cutoff is. But that's not to say that like those schools are, are recruiting like at a, or aren't recruiting at a higher level than Notre Dame because they just are. Like it's it's ridiculous. Um, but one thing I'll, I'll remind Notre Dame fans is that like when Alabama faces Notre Dame at some point in, a, in the playoff in a year or two, like it's not like Notre Dame's 2022 class is playing against Alabama's 2022 class. That's not how football works. 
Like it's multiple classes meshing together with transfers and it depends on development, who the coaches are. I mean, like, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but if Notre Dame's playing Alabama and, you know, Notre Dame's running back fumbles at the goal line on some freak, you know, play or something. You're Ooh, not going to be, be a like trigger warning that that's happened. Yeah. Before. That's happened far too many times. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, before your time on the Notre Dame beat, I think it happened like three times. Okay. All right. Well, or, or they years. fumble at the 40 yard line. There we go. That? <laughs> You're not going to sit back. Damn it. We only got one top hundred player in the 2022 class. It's like, it's like, it's, it's football. Like you, you're going to need some luck and, and everything. I'm not trying to say that, you know, Notre Dame is built right now to beat Alabama. I mean, yeah, Notre Dame is going to need to continue to keep, you know, in, improving their recruiting. I think they'll do so with Freeman. Um, but I don't know. That's, that's, that's my spiel there. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. So that fans aren't thinking instead about having to go to college station when this A&M class is all juniors and, and ready to go. Uh, why everybody wants to go to Texas A&M is still beyond me, but, but that's cash money, baby. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I could think of a couple million reasons why these players want to It's crazy that this whole NIL thing, it's like, on one hand, everyone hates the NCAA, right? Like mm-hmm. all the national media just likes to shit on the NCAA all the time, but also it's like, they need to step in and like regulate, regulate. this stuff a little yeah. bit more. I mean, totally. it's, you know, the schools are not allowed to facilitate deals, but uh, with these recruits, like they're just supposed to say, you know, if you're a Notre Dame, like here's what Kyle Hamilton made, or, you know, here's the, the social media following that, you know, Kyle Hamilton or Kyron Williams, like increased when he came here, like they could present information, but they're not supposed to be like, Hey, you know, if you sign here, you know, Arby's is going to sponsor you. You're like, you're not allowed to do that. Um, but are schools doing that? I think they are. And, uh, yeah. you know, Notre Dame plays by the rules. Um, and I commend them for doing that, for staying true to who they are. But, um, dude, it's just crazy. The rich just keep getting richer here. And um, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Freeman approaches that as time goes on, but I guess we'll have to just wait and see. Um, All right, we're going to put you on the spot here. In the past, I know you've used the great loose emojis one-third rule when projecting how recruiting classes as a whole will perform in college. And if you're listening to this and you're unfamiliar with the idea, basically the one-third rule suggests that of every recruiting class, one-third of it will feature multiple-year starters slash future NFL players. Um, Another third is going to be solid reserve players, spot starters, and then the last third, unfortunately, will probably not pan out at Notre Dame, whether it's uh, due to injury, transfer, academics, etc. Um, and now, obviously, in a perfect world, Notre Dame would like that first group to be a little bit bigger than a third. Um, but in a lot of cases, this is just how it turns out. So if you had to pick, Mike, which seven guys in this class are most likely to become multiple year starters or future NFL draft picks, who would you guess? You know what, uh, Tyler? I, 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 just in hearing you say that, I know you read my 10 thoughts from National Signing Day article. So I know that's where you, you just pulled that from. I love it. I love it. I love it. Tyler's reading yeah, my work. Dedicated reader. Love it. Okay. So you want my seven. So the third of the class. Okay. There's the two like super obvious ones, which probably means one of them not going to pan out because anything <laughs> obvious in college football never yeah. actually happens. But Jalen Sneed, um, you know, who in my opinion should be a, a five-star um, you know, linebacker, you know, he, he's the one that's just like, he's uh, obvious. He, he's a freak, you know, he's, 
40 yards downfield can cover tight ends and running backs, but, you know, can also, you know, you know, get off the edge and, and uh, beat an offensive tackle and sack a quarterback. Like he is, he's a no brainer. Eli Raritan is the other one. Well, we talked about him earlier. He's just a specimen. Um, so he's going to continue to tight end you. He's going to be the next great one. And then I like Emil Wagner um, offensive tackle. I think he is special super athlete um you know he's not enrolling early at notre dame because he's playing basketball and he wants it to go uh, win a, a, a title and shot put or something a state title and shot put so um i really like him he's about 260 pounds right now so he's got some you know bulking up to do and then i like joey tonona i think a lot of people are sleeping on him uh, i like him as an interior offensive lineman um I, I, I think some of these ranking websites are sleeping on them. Uh, on three has them uh, as a borderline five-star player, but um, you know most of the other sites around top 150 or top 200 player in that range. Yeah, so really like Joey Tonona. Um, he's a uh, you know good physically. He's strong, but he, he's a technician. I really like him. So three more. I'll give you Tobias Merriweather at six four, 180 pounds. Tommy Reese talked about this. He's not a one trick pony at that size. Like a lot of guys are They're just, you know, a 50, 50 ball, which can is with this, with this guy, it's more like 80, 20. I hate hearing that crap. <laughs> this, it, it's never 80, 20. If it were 80, 20, they'd be throwing fades to that guy every single play. But you know, anyways, but I still like Tobias Merriweather. I mean, jet sweeps, kickoff return game, run all the routes. You can play him in the slot. Um, really like Tobias Merriweather, Joshua Byrne. I'm one of those linebackers. Uh, he, he's another special athlete, um, versatile, you know, love them at, uh, quarterback, uh, in high school, he didn't really throw the ball super well, but running it, um, you know, he, he's a, a fantastic, um, just well-rounded, um, great instincts, um, love him as a football player. And then the seventh guy is going to be a surprise. There, there's always going to be a surprise guy in there. Jaden Bellamy, love him. Love him. I think that he is going to be a multi-year starter, um, and I, I, I think he's going to end up playing in the NFL. I don't think he's going to be like some superstar in the NFL, but um, I, I think he's an NFL guy. I think his, you know, whether it's at corner or safety, um, his range, his instincts, um, ball skills, um, you know, twitchy athlete. I, I like Jaden Bellamy. So there's, um, there's your surprise of the class. All right. I like it. One last question for me before I know, what would you want to cap this off? But from the moment Marcus Freeman was promoted to become the head coach, Notre Dame, he emphasized the importance of recruiting and, and more specifically his role as the lead recruiter for every prospect Notre Dame looks at. I know that you talk a lot with recruits and their families. So since Marcus has come on board, what have they said is the biggest difference between Marcus and Brian Kelly? I mean, look, I can just tell you a straight up fact, like, a lot of times when Notre Dame's recruits, you know, commit, oftentimes that was their first time talking to Brian Kelly. Like, that's just not acceptable. Like, how does that happen? And, and part of it was, you know, the, you know, the dead period. So those recruits weren't going on visits. And, you know, typically when a, a top target goes on a visit, you know, part of the itinerary is, you know, meeting with Kelly. Um, but still like no phone calls, like what, like someone like Tobias Merriweather before he committed to Notre Dame, I think he had one phone call with Brian Kelly or something like that. And we know about how his in-person interaction went. 
with Brian Kelly. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. But um, part of that falls on the assistant coach. Like they have to, you know, help out a little bit, you know, like, hey, Kelly, you know, you, like this is my top receiver target. Can we get him on the phone? But also like that, that that's crazy. Like that just is like Freeman has already been on the, like within a couple of days of him being announced as head coach. He, I think he talked to all the 2023 quarterback targets. Like he's already getting after it. Um, that it's just, he's just going to be a difference maker. I mean um, him coming in, you know, he helps solidify Billy Strauss commitment to Notre Dame and, and, and making that happen. Like, even though he's a defensive coach, he can go into the uh, living room of an offensive player and sell them on the vision of Notre Dame football. Um, and uh, they, he's just got an it factor about him and, and a, a buy-in. Like people want to run through a wall for him. Um, and, and the thing about him, and I've been hearing this since you know we got hired as a defensive coordinator, is that like the the word to describe him is authentic. Like he, it, like what you see from him in a living room recruiting or whether he's cleaning the dishes or vacuuming, like he's just the same dude. Like that's just his energy all the time. And that's going to bode really well for Notre Dame. All right. Last question before we let you go. And this has nothing to do with this recruiting class necessarily. Um, What's your process like on National Signing Day? I know you like to work ahead. Some of this you can see in advance, um, but it's been a long time coming. And for our listeners out there, just to peel back the curtain, uh, Mike celebrated Last night we're doing this at what was this eleven thirty Eastern on Friday had a Mario party and so celebration is full swing now that signing day is over but really what has this last week couple weeks been like for you? Side note on my uh, Mario party party last night woke up not feeling great but liquid IVs <laughs> dude those things are amazing. Um, drop drop that liquid IV powder in my water you know, I'm feeling <laughs> great so. Um, those things are a godsend. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of prep work. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I work, you know, a week or two in advance, like these little signing day bios that we put out each time a kid signed, we had in our national signing day central thread, but dude literally had articles ready to go. If Devin Moore picked Notre Dame or flipped or, you know, like a Marion Walker, like that article still is, is living on my <laughs> desktop of a Marion Walker sticking with Notre Dame. I had an article prepared if Anthony Lucas was going to pick Notre Dame. Like it's all about preparation. When Emil oh, yeah. Wagner committed to Notre Dame back in November out of the blue um, and didn't even tell Notre Dame he was going to pick them when he announced on CBS Sports HQ, like I had nothing prepared. So I was like, I'm not letting that happen again. So I was prepared for really any outcome. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it's um, you, preparation, planning. Um, it, it's, uh, it was a beast of a day. I woke up at six um, and I think I stopped working around like 8 p.m. that night. Um, so it, it's a fun day though. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time on Friday, a couple of days after to talk this through. We always love having you on. It's been great. Um, he is at Mike T singer on Twitter. Anything you want to plug on your way out, go to blueandgold.com. at the top of the page. There'll say uh, sign up for our free newsletter. If there's breaking news or um, you can sign up for that or uh, our daily newsletter. We send out Monday, th- Monday through Friday around lunchtime, Eastern um, just with some headlines and some stuff going on. So you can catch up on Notre Dame reading 
we, we got some interesting stuff coming up at blueandgold.com um, here in a couple weeks. So uh, a big announcement um, for the future of blue and gold brand to announce to everybody. So that uh, newsletter will be a great way to uh, stay up to date with what we got going on. It's exciting. All right. All right, man. Thank you so much. Let's do it again soon. All right. I know we will do it soon because you guys have me on all the time, but Luke Tyler, <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Matt Fortuna, National College Football Writer for The Athletic and host of The Shamrock, joins us now. Matt, the timing of this is perfect because the first time I heard any speculation about Brian Kelly going to another school was actually on your podcast, um, The Shamrock, very early on in the season. Greg McElroy suggested that USC should reach out to Brian Kelly and, quote, make him say no. Um, at the time, I thought it was ridiculous. And as the season went along, though, we saw more and more people in the national media suggest that USC should look at Brian Kelly and that Brian Kelly should consider it. So, you know, clearly I was wrong the whole time. But even then, I just never once thought it would happen. At what point did you start to believe that Brian Kelly could leave Notre Dame for another school? Um, I mean, I didn't think it was going to happen. So let's get that off, like, right from the top. Like, I did not see this coming. Most people in Notre Dame did not see this coming. Um, it was an absolute shocker. Um the bigger surprise to me, though, is that he went to LSU. I mean, if he was going to leave, I would have thought NFL. If he was going to leave for another college job, I thought USC would be it. But I still didn't think that would happen. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just being, you know, being at the College Football Hall of Fame banquet in Las Vegas last week and just, you know, asking people throughout the industry what they thought. It, it was similar. It was like not surprised he left, surprised he went there because, it's just such uh, the demands of that job are so different from what he's his bread and butter has been. Right. I mean, the guy's obviously one big everywhere he's been. He's had a lot of success, um, but none of it's come in that part of the country um, in that league, in that division. And he doesn't have a whole lot of connections down there. He's still got a lot of staff hires to make and so forth. So, um, you know, until it actually happened, I mean, I think Bruce Feldman, I caught my colleague wrote, midday that Monday, Hey, LSU and Brian Kelly are talking. And even at that point, the people at Notre Dame I was talking to still thought it was leverage play as did I, but I, you know, the fact that it got to the point where like we're writing about it and like, this is happening at least as far as discussions, I'm like, all right, maybe there's something else going on here. I'm not sure. Like we, we you know, we, we've all heard rumors over the course of the last 12 years, never to the point of like, publicly posting something on a national platform like that. So even then though, I was still pretty shocked once he finally pulled the trigger and made the decision to go down there. Um, as was pretty much everyone I talked to um, at Notre Dame. It just, again, him leaving, I didn't see coming, but I, I, you know, I could picture it one day to go to LSU. That one was just a head scratcher. Matt, you've been covering Notre Dame for the better part of a decade. I'm curious, what was the moment for you when you realized that you were covering a week unlike any other as everything with Brian Kelly and Marcus Freeman went down? Um, you know, so I forget who I was talking to during it, but we were like, yeah, the only thing that compares to this was the Manti Teo stuff um, as far as just the craziness of it. And I would actually, as crazy as this was, at the end of the day, it was still a coaching search. Like 20 something other schools went through the same thing. Like it wasn't, it was unique to Notre Dame because it had not happened in a while and because it was a big surprising move, but um, it didn't compare. I mean, I, I would still say the Teo news takes a cake because I didn't know what the hell catfishing was um, until that day. Um, it was crazy. I mean, because, you know, 
again, had not covered that in her day before. I mean, I'm sitting down for pizza with uh, my wife and daughter. We're about to, we order, we're about to go get a Christmas tree and, you know, Brian Kelly's leaving for, for LSU. And I, I kept them waiting. I wanted to watch USC's introduction of Lincoln Riley earlier that day. Cause that was something that no one saw coming and was incredibly surprising and big hire. So I stayed, we left late cause I was home watching that. And then the Kelly thing happens. I'm like, all right, we got to get this to go. And Hey, by the way, they uh, lied to my daughter. And so they closed the Christmas tree lot early and we'd have to go another day, uh, which we did do the next day. But um, I was like, Holy crap. And it was, because of the surprising nature of it, um, it was really easy to talk to people because they had as many questions as I did. I mean, I never had so many people who either were hesitant to talk to me or would ignore my calls or texts who were either reaching out to me or, or call me back immediately. And all were just like, what the, you know, what, what's going on, man? Like you tell us, like he left us in the dark. Um, so it was crazy just because there was a huge information vacuum. And you know, at that moment, I believe Jack Swarbrick was either in Dallas or flying back from Dallas. He was traveling to Dallas that day to get ready for the college football playoff meetings, which he obviously didn't end up skipping because he had a coach to hire. But um, it was, you know, Brian Kelly's in one part of the country. Uh, Jack Swarbrick's in another part of the country. The assistants are scattered all over because they're on the road recruiting. And players who are always the last to know about any of this are just kind of like, you know, what? Huh? So he's quitting on us and we might make the playoff. Oh, and we got to meet tomorrow at 7 a.m. to hear from him. Um, so there were a lot of moving parts. Um, and as crazy as it was, you look back, it's like it's pretty much done in 72 hours. Like they took mercy on us. Anytime you you promote from within and you don't have a full scale national search where you're bringing in dozens of candidates to interview, um, it made things it's, it brought some sanity and some clarity and some some smoothness to a process that started out as anything but. Yeah, you bring up Jack Swarbrick and the timing, and I think that part is really interesting to me because Pat Forty of Yahoo Sports reported that Swarbrick had eight current head coaches on his initial list of candidates to replace Brian Kelly. In his article, Pat said, quote, two of them declined to participate, one had timing issues, two others were eliminated by the school, and the list was quickly whittled to three head coaches and Freeman, end quote. Now, look, this is just one report, um, but I thought it was interesting considering how quickly Swarbrick got the news and then ultimately went with Freeman. So what insight can you share with us about Swarbrick's search um, and his process there before he offered the job to Freeman? Yeah, I don't want to speculate on sourcing. Pat's a friend. He's one of the best in the business. I have no doubt that, um, you know, that that information was conveyed to him accurately. Um, I, I would venture to guess, you know, if we're talking that big a number of names, you know, every AD has in his front drawer, his or her front drawer, a list of people that they're going to call immediately when a day like this comes. Um, I don't know how far down the line they got with any of them. I would have guessed if the, I mean, Tommy Reese essentially held this thing together. Like it was like Marcus Freeman's coming back if we can keep this infrastructure in place. And that infrastructure was under threat because Brian Kelly planned on bringing both those coordinators with him down to LSU for a ridiculous amount of money. And now Tommy has talked about this on a couple of podcasts. Marcus Freeman talked about this on the audible. Um, my colleague Bruce and Sue's podcast yesterday. Um, both their reactions, I think initially were, all right, at least we have a job. Um, you know, worst case scenario, we're going to LSU. We're going to get paid. We're going to coach in the sec with the same boss we've had this past year. Um, as far as the timeline and things of that nature, 
you know, everyone try to hustle back, I think, to campus as quick as possible. Um, Monday, Brian Kelly leaves. Tuesday morning, right? Tuesday morning, he speaks yeah. uh, to the team. That was a 7 a.m. Yes. meeting. Yeah. Um, Tuesday night, I believe, Tommy Reese spends much of the night with Jack Swarbrick going over their situation. Wednesday morning, Marcus Freeman does the same. And the way it was conveyed to me was was always not necessarily a package deal, but, you know, this is a really challenging job for anyone, let alone a guy who's 35 years old and has never been a head coach before. Um, the program's in a really good spot. The captains, the donors, some very influential alumni all made it a point to Jack Swarbrick, hey, we've got a great culture going here. Let's not ruin this. Um I'm not saying one party there was more important than the other, but I think the combination of all of it, when you're talking about a program that's won 10 or more games, five straight years, that was very important. Um, so it's not to start from scratch. Um, and the other part of it too, I don't know this, but I would I'd say with 95% certainty, like Luke Fickle would probably be the outside guy, the number one outside guy. And he wasn't talking to anybody. Um, nor would he now, I don't think, from my understanding, with a, with a playoff to prepare for uh, some people actually stay at their jobs and see their season through when they're in the middle of a championship race. That's a crazy concept. Even Cincinnati fans are, are happily surprised to hear about that one. Um, but Tommy Reese was very, very close to going to LSU and he, he has come out and said as much, but like he was, he was sending pictures of tiger stadium to friends saying, see you in death Valley, like Notre Dame decided to play hardball with him financially. And I don't think it was about the money with him so much as like, Hey, if you want me to stay, you got to at least show me a little bit of love. Um, and they finally came to their senses at the 11th, at the 11th hour. Um, Tommy Reese, you know, informed Brian Kelly, and it was not nearly as pleasant a conversation as, as he has conveyed um, publicly. And I've heard that from multiple parties on both sides. Um, and once he was in, I think the dominoes quickly began to fall. I mean, Matt Bayless earlier in the day, that day had said, you know, he planned on staying, um, Freeman interviewed the next day and by all counts knocked it out of the park. Um, and almost everybody, the exception of Brian Pullian and I believe Jeff Quinn, who, who's on right now, but will not be returning after the bowl game. Almost everybody has intentions to come back. So it was crazy. There were a lot of moving parts. This thing was held together by a thread um, at some points, but it, it snapped into place pretty quickly. And we, we've all seen the reactions. I mean, both internally and externally, um, everyone is really, really excited about Notre Dame football right now. Now, could that change two weeks from now if they get blown out by Oklahoma State? Absolutely. But um, right now, it's that rare situation where you lose the winningest coach in program history, and it's kind of like, eh, all right, cool. We'll, we'll be fine. You mentioned Tommy Reese uh, appearing on a couple of podcasts and, and Marcus Freeman also appearing on the Audible you know, obviously it's early on, but but to me, it seems like there's already been more access to assistant coaches and the head coach that was kind of unbecoming of the old regime. What do you make of that, if anything? Um, I don't want to speak for everybody, but like speaking for like Pete Sampson, my my co-host and athletic colleague of mine, like we've always had really good relationships with a lot of assistant coaches and people inside the Goog, and us and everyone always wondered why are you shielding these guys like they're there's they're up and coming stars they're great people to talk to the type of guys you'd want to go out and have a beer with and you know we've you've heard it from both of them i mean both of them got promoted for a reason right like they're really good at what they do 
Um, they're young. They're good recruiters. They connect with people really well. They they speak very well in public. Um, Tommy Reese, you know, helped, handled the whole press conference and, and sounded like a head coach giving an opening statement there. Like he's 28 years old or 29 years old, going on 45. Like he's he's a really sharp guy. Um, Brian Kelly was just always very. Um, I don't know if distance the right word. Like I, I don't want to like rag all over the guy when he leaves because like he won a hell of a lot of games and did a tremendous job in Notre Dame and completely saved the place early on. But um, everything with him was very impersonal, very businesslike, very distant. I mean, look, Lincoln Riley leaves Oklahoma for USC, and the question is how many staff guys are going to go with him? How many recruits is he going to flip? I don't think a single recruit has flipped from Notre Dame to LSU. Like, no one committed to Notre Dame because of Brian Kelly. They committed to Notre Dame because of Notre Dame. And, um, look, that's the way he's done business. It's served him extremely well. Who am I to question it? But during moments like this, like, you lose the benefit of the doubt with your players when you're leaving them and in the public's eye, I think, when you're leaving them. And um, I think we've all heard some version of the, like, Notre Dame cool factor now, right? Like, there's definitely a palpable buzz about this program right now from people, not just Notre Dame fans, but around college football that I don't think has ever really existed. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully selfishly for our sake, that will continue to be the case um, in the years to come under the Marcus Freeman regime. Um, but there's definitely a sense of like, all right, we can be ourselves right now. Like our, our boss is going to recruit, which like Ryan Kelly was not a very good recruiter like that was a, an open secret that they tried really hard to, to, to fight against publicly anytime we talk about it, but it's the truth. And we, we've seen it this the past yesterday or two days ago, Wednesday, like that was laid out plain as day for anybody to see. So um, the other thing I would say is like when, when Brian Kelly broke the wins record against Wisconsin that week, we did a couple of stories and Pete's was something to the effect of, uh, you know, why does Brian Kelly win so many games? And mine was like, here's some, some interesting facts about Brian Kelly. And uh, you know, we, again, the guys won a lot, so I don't mean to be critical of him, but like, I, it's just really fascinating to me that a guy wins as many games as he does. And your question is, how is he winning? Not like, wow, what a great job he's done. Like, you know what I mean? Like there was no like incredible scheme that he had that, that, you know, beat everybody. He wasn't out recruiting Nick Saban and beating everybody. Um, his organizational skills and hiring skills, while very strong, were very different from most people in that seat. I mean, the guy was not in the building a lot. He did not call a whole lot of staff meetings. There was a lot of cliques and factions within the goob that just kind of had minds and, and motives of their own. Um, so it was always really interesting to, to just see him come out and churn out these 10, 11 win seasons every year, um, despite everything we had heard. And now it sounds like those parts are going away. And the challenge for Marcus Freeman will be, Elevating the program, elevating the talent and the operation of the whole place um, without, I hate to say sacrificing, because I think you can have it all, but, you know, while still taking care of business. I mean, Brian Kelly's tenure got boring at the end because he was going to win every damn game he was supposed to win. And, and that's something that I think could be taken for granted very easily, especially when you look at how much more difficult Marcus Freeman's first couple schedules will be compared to what Brian Kelly had to face at Dirty. I'm glad you brought up the challenges Marcus Freeman is going to have to face now that he's the head coach. And you made an interesting point about Notre Dame playing hardball with Tommy Reese. Um, because in the past, you've written and spoken about some of the challenges the football program faces in dealing with its own school administration. And frankly, like as you've said before, this shows up in the facilities and resources dedicated to the football program. And let's be honest, the subtext and a lot of comments Brian Kelly made after being introduced by LSU suggested that 
that was a big reason why he left Notre Dame. So with that in mind, what are some of the challenges Marcus Freeman will have to deal with now that he's the head coach at a place like Notre Dame? Yeah, I don't think money's a problem. I mean, and, you know, Brian Kelly got a nice pay raise to go to LSU, but it wasn't like he was making a lot of money at, at Notre Dame. I mean, when, maybe this was people taking him as word a little too literally, but a week before he left, he had made that comment to the effect of unless a fairy godmother comes with 250, I think was the figure he threw out 250 million. You know, I'm not going. And, you know, I got, I had someone read the contract to me the, the night he left for LSU and I tweeted it. And, I feel like I got more reaction from that or at least as much reaction to that as I did from him leaving at all. I was like, wait, he's leaving for Mel Tucker money. Like, it's not like fairy godmother, but again, like it's a hundred million dollars. Like I don't want to discuss how much money that is, but the guy already had a lot of money and he was making a lot of money in their name and he got a lot done there. Um, obviously the, the Goog needs an expansion. I don't know where things stand with that. And I'll be curious to hear how Marcus Freeman approaches those conversations. Cause that's, that more than anything else, I think, is a need of a major upgrade if they're going to be serious about recruiting with the Ohio States and Georgias of the world. Um, but the off-field stuff will be interesting, and I'm more curious to see how it changes from an infrastructure standpoint, you know, Monday through Friday. Um, how are you organizing your recruiting department? How are you expanding your recruiting department? Um, how are you – you say you want to be the lead recruiter on every single guy you're going after. How are you – what tools do you need to do that? Because that's a lot. I mean, I know you're supposed to do it, but that's still a tall ask for a head coach who's got so many other things on his plate. So um, Pete and I have talked about private planes a lot. Um, we saw Tommy Reese get on one um, the day after he, he opted back in, which I imagine is a good sign that Notre Dame's finally doing that. I mean, I was on the phone with someone from Clemson when Tommy put that tweet out that day. And I mentioned to the guy from Clemson, um, wow, this is a first for Notre Dame. And he's like, are you kidding me? We've not had an assistant coach fly commercial in 10 years here. Like, that's ridiculous. And yeah, I see you rolling your eyes and I have the same reaction because like they have money. They paid Brian freaking Van Gorder <laughs> top market value eight years ago to be their DC. They a multi-billion dollar endowment. Yeah, so, and I've talked to agents and other guys in the industry who, who have worked with Notre Dame in the past, but, you know, aren't there every day. And they, they, they have the same questions. Like, what's their reasoning for acting the way they do with some of these things? Because we can't figure out. They have the money. They've paid it. I mean, they, you know, it took them a while, but they, they're paying Tommy Reese a hell of a lot of money right now. From my understanding, Marcus Freeman is making a hell of a lot of money, especially for a first-year head coach. Like, they have it. Why do they – what's their process for allocating it when and why they do? Um because it shows up in some places and it doesn't show up in the other. Uh, and that will be an interesting tightrope for Marcus to, to kind of walk in the, in the coming years here. So I've listened to all of the emergency shamrock pods have come out the last all two weeks. Oh yeah. I got, <laughs> I I mean, I some of them. what else am I supposed to do work? But uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> a consistent point that has come up in those episodes is, is the autonomy that Tommy Reese will now have over the offense in his enhanced role. So I guess my question for you is what are you most looking forward to seeing out of Tommy in this new role and and following up on that, as you understand it, what are some of the new responsibilities Tommy will have now that he has more control over the offense? Yeah. I mean, we've all seen Brian Kelly take his foot off the gas, so to speak, as a play caller and offensive coach since, you know, the four and eight season, more or less, he hired Chip Long to come in and kind of be the bad cop, so to speak, which he did very well. And they had a lot of success of and, ultimately ran its course after 2019 Um, saw Tommy Reese get promoted after that. And 
while it was Tommy's offense, while he was a guy calling the plays and, and creating the game plans, um, and he is, you know, I think he said this on the Rasul show as well. Like at the end of the day, coaching, he did not have the freedom that Marcus Freeman and the defensive staff had um, working for an offense, a head coach with an offensive background. There were still times where it's Thursday of game week and Brian Kelly's walking by saying, Hey, let's run this, this, and this. And it's like, the game plan's already in. We already practiced. You know what I mean? Like, we don't even have that route in our play, but you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but there's, there's those aspects. Um, there's from my understanding, the hiring aspect, like the offensive line coach, whomever that is, will be Tommy Reese's call. Um, Jeff Quinn was nobody, but Brian Kelly's call. Um, and that's how that played out. Um, so I'll be curious, I'll be curious to see how he taps into his, his network, whether it's professionally or collegiately, um, if he recruits differently and like, I, we're never like in the rooms with these guys when they're in a parent's living room or hosting someone on an official visit. But, um, you know, Tommy was with Brian Kelly, on Brian Kelly's last visit. Um, he hung out with him after the Stanford game, they went golfing and they were in Tobias Merriweather's um, living room when Kelly ultimately left for LSU. I'll be curious. And I, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's the same, maybe it's different, but, to recruit your position without the head coach being right there and having to essentially, you know, look, not look over your shoulder, but look, if your boss is in the room with you, you're always going to notice that. And every word and action you take human nature wise is going to reflect that and not having that overbearing parental, whatever you want to call it, kind of, kind of figure in there with you, I imagine will allow him to, to express himself and be himself a little bit more. I mean, look, the, you saw the video when he returned. I mean, those players, especially those quarterbacks, really, really, really respect him. A um, couple of them were at his house with him that day while he was deliberating what to do. I mean, these relationships go really, really deep. Um, he, he's he got more equity at that place from his playing days and his coaching days than probably anybody on that staff right now. So, um I think the guy carries a lot of juice everywhere he goes. I think he has a lot more personality than he's ever shown publicly other than in that video, which I think we'll start to see more of. Um, and I think that relates really well, especially when he's only 29 years old or so, he can still speak these kids' language and, and, you know, talk to them and coach them uh, in the way that he sees fit. Cause you know, again, as young as he is, he's got a hell of a lot of experience. I mean, when he got promoted OC, I remember writing a story about him, and I talked to other quarterbacks in that room with him at Notre Dame, and they're just like, man, between this guy's father, his brother, like he came in as an 18-year-old with the knowledge of a senior already, and we were all just playing catch-up. Like he would just – he would sit down and predict the, tomorrow's game, and it would play out exactly as he would do it stylistically and, and, and points-wise. So um, he's incredibly sharp, incredibly intelligent, incredibly personable um, when it comes to recruiting football players and particularly quarterbacks – uh, that I'm excited to see what he can do without any strings attached. I want to shift to the rest of the staff because it looks like Notre Dame is going to be in the market for, like you said, a new offensive line coach, a new defensive coordinator, a special teams coach, and potentially a new receivers coach as well. I know that Freeman said that right now all the focus for him and the staff is preparing for the Fiesta Bowl, and that's you know great to hear, and fans are obviously very invested in the game, but uh, as this uncertainty lingers, um, I think a lot of people are just curious. How do you see this shaking out after the bowl game? It's a good question, and it's one I'm, I'm 
probably at the, at the forefront of like next step I want to see or what it's going to be, what I'm more, most curious about um, is what do you do on the defensive side of the ball? You've got a head coach who's a defense coordinator. You have pretty much an entire staff in place right now. Um, what are you looking for in a defensive coordinator? And how attractive is this job? I know it's Notre Dame. I know they play, pay, but if you're a coordinator, you probably don't want to walk into a room where your staff is already there for you. And your head coach is, is, I mean, he's obviously your boss, but he's defense, much like Tommy Russo with Brian Kelly, right? Like whose defense is this? Is it Marcus Freeman's? Is it mine? Is it Mike Elston's? Whomever that may be. So I'll be very curious to see how that plays out, um, both in the recruiting process, the interview process, and the, the kind of assimilation process, whenever that may be. Because if you're hiring an outside guy with a group of guys that have been together for a couple of years now, those forced marriages don't always work. Um, so I don't know where where they'll go or which way they'll look in that regard. I think special teams coordinator is a little bit easier. Um, I don't have any names for you if that's what you're asking for, but yeah, I think you need a guy who's really going to get after it on the recruiting trail. Like Brian Pulling was one of their better recruiters when he was there. He had a lot of experience um, really throughout the country, but you know he was kind of their, their meal ticket to Hawaii. Um, they had to go down south. He knew how to go down there, which is why you know he's back with Brian Kelly at LSU right now. Um, an offensive line is one where, you know, the place kind of recruits itself right now. Um, especially when you look at the current roster and how many probably future first round picks they've got among those freshmen and sophomores right now. Um, you need a guy who's a really good teacher who could connect really well with these guys and who can develop talent. Um, you know, we, we heard a lot of complaints early on about Jeff Quinn this season. Um, uh, he's, uh, from, you know, he's not, I don't think, I don't know if he's out there now. I don't know if they've addressed it. Like, you know, everything I've been told, he's not coming back after the bowl game, but he can stick on until then. Um, I don't know which direction they go in for that. I mean, from my, under, I know Harry, he's saying would be a popular pick among the fans. From my understanding, he's enjoying retirement right now and it probably will stay that way. Um, I don't know who the, the next offensive line coach in Notre Dame will be, but I, that's the one more than any others where I think, I, I probably have the least to worry about because the place kind of recruits itself to that position. Um, I, I just don't think they're going to make a bad hire there. I think that that's a, that's a really hard position to screw up at that school. And I think they've got too much going for them and too many smart people making decisions there right now where I, I, I just think that one's going to turn out. Okay. However it turns out. Um, but the defense coordinator piece to me will be very interesting to see. I want to talk about receivers a little bit because the situation there went from bad to worse after Notre Dame only signed one receiver recruit in this 2022 class. If every single receiver on the current roster were to return for next season, Notre Dame would still only have seven scholarship receivers plus a true freshman in Tobias Merriweather. As a result, a lot of fans have cried out for Notre Dame to dip into the transfer portal and build out the position from there. I know that Notre Dame's obviously added grad transfers in the past, but but rarely adds transfers who are still undergraduates. Do you see that changing in the future at all, or is that just another academic restriction Notre Dame's going to have to deal with? I think it'll change eventually. I don't know if it'll happen overnight where, all right, we're going to go get these three guys and they're going to come in as sophomores and, and that's that. But it's 20, it's almost 2022. I mean, that's, this is how business gets done in college football. I know they want to get some receivers last year out of the portal and they just struck out on them. And, and that was obviously a concern coming in the season. I think, you know, it played out on the field. Okay. This season, but long-term uh, between the the lack of, of really anybody in those sophomore junior classes, and just one guy coming into this class, 
that's something that absolutely needs to be fixed. And um, the quickest and easiest way to do that is through the transfer portal. So I, I think in the short term, they're absolutely going to have to to kick the tires on some guys in there and, and see if they're right fits for the place and, and bring them in. And, um, you know, I know that that is something that wasn't always, there wasn't always a heavy appetite for that at Notre Dame maybe five years ago, but I mean, you know, look at Northwestern, which, you know, for football players, at least has much more stringent academic requirements than Notre Dame does. They've gone to a portal for a quarterback three straight years now, one of whom was a, coming off a freshman year uh, in Ryan Holinsky at South Carolina. So um, I think that's the quickest way to fix this problem right now. And I, I'm not sure there's any other option because like you said, you look at the numbers, I mean, you, you need bodies right now. I mean, I, I know you need good players, but you need people to, to practice with. It's that dire of a situation relative to the rest of the roster right now. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to follow throughout uh, the offseason and through the spring, really, into the summer. Um, you mentioned earlier the cool factor a little bit at Notre Dame now. It seems like there's a refreshed interest in Notre Dame football with the recent coaching change. And I'm curious, from a national perspective, do you think this is a byproduct of 12 years of hearing the same thing from Brian Kelly pretty much every day? Or is there truly something unique worth following with what's transpired in South Bend um, following this takeover of the new regime? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of every, everything. I mean, Brian Kelly was not the warmest or cuddliest guy. Even the most diehard of Notre Dame fans were not exactly sad to see him go, which also adds to the weird dynamic of pretty much his entire era, as successful as it was. I think you've got a 35-year-old first-time head coach who I think a lot of people, I don't know if you guys do, but I don't know how old you are, but like I remember him playing at Ohio State and playing on back-to-back national championship teams or, or teams that play the national championship. Um, I followed his career from pretty much day one when he decided to get into coaching. Um, you see the locker room videos when he enters um, and, and announces himself as a head coach. Uh, you see it with Tommy Reese, another guy who I think almost everyone who's following this program remembers as a player and has kind of grown up with him as he's turned into uh, an elite offensive coordinator. So I think um, the combination of what's left and what's coming absolutely adds to that. <clears throat> I think the excitement around the players, I mean, you just never see that out of Notre Dame, you know, I mean, like, yeah, they'll have a walk on, get a scholarship and people will be excited and this and that, but you've never seen them respond that way to an adult in the room. Um, and that was different. And that was refreshing. I think for a lot of people to say, to see and um, recruiting wise, I mean, they just signed the number seven class of the country, which is the best class they've signed in nine years. And they weren't doing backflips. It was, Hey, we only got one receiver. Hey, you know, we did what we could under this time. We, we got to get better. If Brian Kelly signed a top 10 class, I mean, he would, he'd be asking for a, a gold star. Like, look, you know, like he, he only opened up, I think Pete wrote this, like it took him 10 years to say, Hey, maybe we can recruit a top five class. It took Marcus Freeman like two days. Like Marcus Freeman from day one has basically looked around at this place, looked at the resources and opportunities that Notre Dame can provide you and be like, why can't we go out there and, and, and get the best players throughout the country. And if I hear one more time from an assistant coach there in a public forum, well, we're only allowed to recruit the top 25 or the top 100 on right or whatever. Like, well, go get all 25 of them then. Okay. Because you got more resources for a smaller pool of candidates and you're not doing that. You're not doing that because your head coach was not fully invested in it the way a national championship aspiring head coach needs to be. And at least right now in the short term, Marcus Freeman is saying and doing all the right things in that regard. And I think, most of his staff already was of that belief and is, is invigorated by that challenge of going out there and, and reaching for a higher level of recruit. Um, and if anyone who wasn't, 
before that, I think they're on board now too, because you're going to reflect your, your job and your operation is going to reflect the face of it. And if the face of your operation, Marcus Freeman is, is all about recruiting, then you have no choice, but to get in line and do the same. Um, he talked about this time or he's talked about it. Like accessibility is a big thing. The first player or assistant who tells me he had Brian Kelly's cell phone, the next player or assistant, not assistant or recruit who tells me his Brian Kelly's cell phone number will be the first. No one talked to him. Again, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that's the reality of the situation. Lincoln Riley was borderline harassing Tyson Ford's family uh, to get him to come aboard. And they did not hear a single word from the head coach in Notre Dame, which was a school they were committed to. That's a problem. Um, if Marcus Freeman can text right back to you, if Tommy Reese is in a room with a quarterback and can say, hey, you want to talk to the head coach? I'll get him on right now. That's a big deal. Steve Angeli, the quarterback they signed this uh, class from Bergen Catholic, did not have a single conversation with Brian Kelly before he committed to Notre Dame. Like, I Let's take a step back, give it a year from now, and see how this regime unfolds. And I think we'll all realize how absurd that is and how remarkable it is Notre Dame's done as well as it has on the field, despite uh, some of the absentee leadership in the recruiting department. I want to end with this. Uh, I think that this increased interest in, in the Notre Dame program comes at an interesting time because if you look at this season, games weren't selling out. Um, one of your colleagues at The Athletic, Bill Shea, in his sports business mailbag the other day, he had a question about you know Notre Dame's ratings. And NBC ratings this year were way down. Uh, TV viewership, Irish games lost almost half from 2020, dropping to 2.5 million viewers from 4.8 million last year, which is pretty significant. I'm just, I'm curious, what do you make of all of that? It, it seems like that kind of conflicts with at a time where there seems to be a lot of interest in this program. TV viewership and, and even game attendance to to an extent just aren't really lining up with that. Yeah, I mean, good timing in that regard, right? I don't think you'll have to worry about not seeing a packed house next year, short of if they're really bad and people don't want to go at the end of the year. But um, I think schedule's part of that, too. I mean, your home opener is against Toledo. It's on Peacock. I mean, what, what was their best home game this year? North USC, North Carolina? Yeah. Oh, Probably. Cincinnati. Well, I mean, Cincinnati, look, yeah. yeah. Cincinnati, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to miss that. But this was, I mean, no fault of Brian Kelly's own, but I mean – and I'll ask you guys this because I want to see your reaction. Before last year's Clemson game, do you know who the only top 10 game Brian Kelly played at home in Notre Dame? Yeah. yeah. It was uh, Notre Dame-Stanford 2018. Yeah, in 18. And that was not a particularly great Stanford team, no. uh, as Notre Dame showed. So um, I don't think that's Brian Kelly's fault. I mean, that schedule never really lived up to its preseason billing. Um, Florida State ball fell off the face of the earth. USC obviously took a dip with, with Clay Heldon. Stanford right now is not what it was five years ago. I think that has a lot to do with it. Look, we're still in the middle of a pandemic right now as we record this. I think there's still some, you know, legitimate hesitancy on the parts of people to travel far to go to games. And, and, and in Notre Dame's case, it's not a state school where, hey, we're going to get in the car, drive two hours and go to the game today. Your fan base is coming from all over the world. And, and that's a pretty big commitment. Um, to make every single Saturday in the fall. So I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, so, yeah, I just think it was a number of, of different things that that ultimately led to this being a, a probably a little bit of underwhelming year as far as fan interest in person at the stadium. I think undoubtedly that will change, um, at least in the short term, with Marcus Freeman there and with the better schedule. Uh, and this is a part 
a piece of the Marcus Freeman evaluation that I think is getting overlooked right now is, you know, he's playing Ohio State of Clemson next year. He's got AM in a couple of years. He's got some really tough opponents. And as we saw this year, you got to go undefeated to get in the playoff in Notre Dame. And as excited as I am to hear him talk about national championships, as I'm as excited as I'm sure you guys are to hear him talk about national championships, um, you need to go undefeated to even have a chance to do that. And Brian Kelly was good at doing that. And I'm not saying Marcus Freeman won't be good at doing that, but the challenge in front of him to go undefeated in any given year is going to be significantly more difficult than it was, um, say, in 2018 when USC is under 500. Florida State's terrible under Willie Taggart. You know, all, all those programs, Syracuse went from 10 wins, I think, to three wins that year. Like, um, they got – I hate to say lucky because they won the games. Like, Virginia Tech that year on the road, like – their schedule has not always lived up to its billing. Um, I think that changes because they've already upgraded a lot of the opponents they're going to be facing in the, in the short-term future. All right, Matt, this has been great. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at Matt underscore F-O-R-T-U-N-A and check out his work on The Athletic as well as his podcast, The Shamrock, with another friend of the program, Pete Sampson. Um, thanks so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to this extended episode of Sons of Saturday Irish. Hope you all enjoyed it. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever streaming platform you're using to listen to this episode. We will be back shortly after Christmas to preview the Irish and the Fiesta Bowl against the Oklahoma State Cowboys. So please tune in for that and uh, have a great holiday, and we'll talk to you then.